please open your Bible with me to the book of Acts, chapter 3. And once you find your spot there, hold your spot in Acts chapter 3, and then go with me into the Old Testament near the middle of your Bible to Isaiah chapter 35, which is where we will begin. So hold your spot in Acts chapter 3, and we will begin in Isaiah chapter 35. If you are visiting today, we've been working through Acts for a couple of months now, and we uh, we are, it's just, it's just an amazing book. And today, I, I've been talking about how the Old Testament influenced Luke, and especially the book of Isaiah. And I just want to read, it's not a very long chapter, Isaiah 35, 1 through 10 here. And th- this is Isaiah looking into the future. He's writing 700 B.C., so he's looking far into the future, and he is seeing the age of the Messiah the servant of the Lord, and all the things that are going to happen in this world when the Messiah finally comes. And this is this picture of some of the incredible realities that will arrive with Christ's return. Isaiah 35, verse 1, "'The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing.' The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. You may recognize these next words from Hebrews 12. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there." And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Is that not a glorious picture of our future in Christ? Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 3, and I'm actually going to start at the end of 2 where we were last week, so really 2.42 is technically where I will start. Before reading today's passage, I thought it might be nice to have a visual aid to go with uh, this passage as we read it here. So I'll admit you, I'll admit to you that there is some guesswork going on, and I could definitely be wrong about the details here. And if I'm wrong, it's not the end of the world, but I want to at least give you a picture of what's going on. So here's our first slide today. Uh, I want to show you just kind of a classical picture here of the Temple Mount. This is a model, I believe this is in Jerusalem, a, a large model of the Temple Mount from the time of Christ. 
Now, if you're wondering, that full platform there is enormous. I think it's 30-some-odd acres. I mean, it's just absolutely enormous. That's today where the Dome of the Rock uh, is, uh, the golden uh, Muslim mosque and, and, and place there. But as you can see here, this is Herod's rebuilt temple from the time of Christ. And you can see running along the outside there, the temple of, uh, excuse me, the, the portico of Solomon. The, this place, this kind of porch-like thing, uh, it wasn't actually literally built by Solomon. His temple was destroyed, but it was named after him. And you can see there was this massive area around the temple where you could have teaching in the shade, and they often did this. We'll read in a moment that they did that very thing. And imagine we're just going to zoom in with this next slide. We're zooming into the center of the picture, and you can see there the temple, obviously, in the top part of the picture. And now here's the debate, and again, I'm not going to stake, I wouldn't stake $10 on this, okay? So I'm not sure. There's about four or five different gates that could be what Luke refers to as the beautiful gate. Okay, I don't know which one it is for sure, but a lot of people think, some people think it's this gate at the bottom of the screen right there, the gate that goes out from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women, the Jewish women, which is that court in the middle of the screen, and then you move one gate further into the court of Jewish men, and you have the temple there at the top of the screen. It could be the gate right here at the bottom of the screen where the beggar is. It's possible. I slightly prefer the argument that it's this incredibly spectacular gate here in the middle, which was apparently made of Corinthian bronze. It was an ex extremely beautiful gate. Josephus, from the first century who would have seen it, describes it in vivid detail, and uh, there was a number of steps leading up to that gate. I'm not going to stake my life on this, but I'm just going to assume that that's very possibly where this man was laid. Very possibly the beautiful gate would be that gate right there uh, in the middle. And let me go to the next slide as well. Okay, this is fantastic. We've got a tourist here, ladies and gentlemen. So, uh, th this is not the same place. This is, the, this is the, I think, called the Holy Land experience, which I have not experienced myself. But um, they have rebuilt the temple and the beautiful gate, this gate right here in front of the temple, and you can stand and pose and get your picture in front of it. And so, just to give you a sense of the scale, do you see the size of this, okay? You've got these stairs going up, this amazing, massive gate, and then going beyond, you have the temple itself, and then the priests would go in from there. So, I won't leave that up for a long time. We'll go back to the next slide here and uh, there. You can just look at that for, for a moment here as we, uh, as we think about this, and just, just know that at the very least, it was in this very area where these events took place. So, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'm going to read all the way to 316. This is a long text. 242, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, or 3 p.m. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate in the temple of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. We will hopefully, Lord willing, finish that message, His sermon, next Sunday. So, today we are looking at a sign and a sermon, and that alliteration I'm borrowing from someone else, although I will say almost every… there's a lot of ways to alliterate this. I thought there's like five different ways, but I think a sign and a sermon is a good way to, to kind of summarize what is happening here. You have a sign, and then Peter follows it with a sermon. Now, a number of things going on here. First thing, this, this poor man who's been Uh, lame from birth, if you flip over to chapter 4, verse 22, you get a little more more information about this individual. In 4.22, talking about the same man who was healed at the beautiful gate, 4.22 says, for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than how old? Forty years old. He's more than 40 years old. So, this man had been born lame, unable to walk, some kind of problem in his feet, ankles, and he was unable to stand. He had to be carried to wherever he would be. And for 40 years, he had been in this condition for more than 40 years. Some speculate that perhaps 30 of those years had been spent begging for alms. And and we all understand this in this world. Uh, There are some people who, because of how they are physically, are unable to do much else. And so, this man had been carried day by day by friends or family into this area. Whether it was that door or the other door or another door, he was carried to one of these doors, and he was placed outside that door every single day, and he had to face the, the shame, frankly, of the helplessness of being unable to work and to only ask for silver or gold or coins. And R.C. Sproul, who passed away a few years ago, R.C. Sproul told a story of when he was in, um, I think it was in uh, Amsterdam, and he lived there working on his, uh, one of his degrees uh, in theology. And while he was there, he said he had to walk a long way and travel to get to where he needed to go every day for school, and he said he would cross over this bridge. And he said every single day, without fail, the same man 
who was, I think, also disabled in some way, was there on that bridge begging for coins. And Sproul said, I frequently would, would put some coins into the man's container, and I would walk on to my classes, and I, came, I would come home, and I would frequently see him there. Well, he said, then he left. He left for maybe five years or so, and he came back to do, some more, to do something else. I don't know what he was doing. He returned five or so years later, and he said, when he walked over that bridge, the same man was sitting there that he'd remembered from those years earlier. Well, he said then he even bought a book, a photography book of the city he had lived in, and when he flipped through the photography book, to his astonishment, there was a picture of that bridge, and the same man was there in the picture. And his point was this, in some of these places, you will have someone who is known because they are always at this particular place, and they beg regularly for, for some kind of money or financial support, and everyone in the city, everyone who, is, who drives around or walks around, depending on where you are, uh, recognizes and knows this person. They are a staple of that location. Well, this man was one of those kinds of people for 40 years of his life, many of those years spent, no doubt, begging at this very spot. He was known. Now, we're talking tens of thousands of people would enter into this temple every year, hundreds of thousands annually, tens of thousands regularly. Do you think people remembered this individual? Oh, they did. And so, when he is suddenly miraculously transformed, as we will look at, this is not a gimmick, this is not a hoax, this isn't something made up, it's not someone was hired to, you know, act like something was going on or fake healing. This was a man who had been known for many years to be in this place, every indication would say, and when he is able to walk, it is a testimony of astonishment because everyone around knows that could not have happened if it wasn't the intervention of God in his life. So, let's look more carefully here at the passage. We're told in verse 43 of chapter 2, all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And here, Luke zooms in with his camera on one of them. He could have picked many. Remember, John said, if I told you all the miracles of Jesus, I could fill every book in the world a hundred times over. I could fill all the libraries with books of what Jesus did. Well, so he probably could have done with the apostles. But he zooms in on one specific story. There will be, I think, 14 miracles or so coming in the book of Acts. But he zooms in and spends a lot of time on this one. And I want to talk about why he may focus on this one particular story. So, look again uh, at 3.1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk." Sproul said as well in his sermon, Sproul said, much to our own shame perhaps, is it not true that sometimes when you are nearby someone who is asking for money, whether you're walking or in your car, there is a temptation, if we're being honest, to divert our eyes from the eyes of the person asking. I know we're in church and we're not supposed to act like that's ever happened before, but I bet if you're being honest, 
There have been times where you don't actually even want to make eye contact because you don't want to feel that tension or that awkwardness between you and that other individual. And no doubt he was used to people at the beautiful gate looking at the gate and not looking at him. There's a lot to look at in this temple, and a lot of people are not going to want to look directly at this individual. But that's not true of Peter and John. They direct their gaze at this gentleman, and they even ask him to look directly at them. Now, it's, it's getting more awkward by the moment at this point, okay? So, they're looking straight at him. We got two verses, I think, or we got a, long, a couple sentences about this gaze. He's looking right at them, both of them, Peter and John, and then they say, look at us. And he looks at them, and no doubt, clearly, he's expecting to receive some kind of financial support from them. And Peter's opening statement must have been quite a disappointment. Silver and gold, we're off to a good start. Silver and gold, have I none. Uh-oh, okay, now that's not good. We, we just took a turn there. I, no doubt this man, his face is dropping from expectation to disappointment, and suddenly he says, silver and gold, have I none. But what I do have... I give to you. Now, I'll just tell you a side story. I heard one pastor tell, uh, tell this story. He said, oh, this is no knock on college students. It just made me laugh. He said that during, during the year, they had a lot of college students attending their church. And he said that uh, some of them didn't have a lot of financial, uh, didn't have a lot of finances going their direction, okay? School can be tough, paying for everything. So, he said one day, a college student had put a, I think it was a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit in the offering plate and had attached a note that said, Silver and gold have I none, but, <laughs> but such as I have, I give to you. Now, we, we will accept uh, the bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. I, I will accept that here at this church, but um, we, we can all know what it is like to say, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily have a lot right now financially to be able to give, and this must have been a disappointment, but they say, such as I have, I give to you. And then they say the craziest words imaginable. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, others standing around, and no doubt this man, at that moment, I think, would have felt like this was ridiculous mockery. Okay, stand up and walk. It's ridiculous mockery. Are you trying to insult me on top of not helping me? And then, Peter reaches out his right hand and takes the man's right hand verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, in Greek, connected Greek word, almost the same exact word, is used in that Isaiah passage I read a moment ago. Did you notice it? When the day of the Messiah comes, the lame will leap. They will leap because of God's presence among them. I don't know about you, I, uh, <clears throat> I sometimes have this, this thing where I'll, I'll go on YouTube and uh, I look up videos of people who uh, have had some kind of disability, and they're getting it fixed for the first time. And I am not ashamed to tell you that even though I will act like I'm not going to cry, it is irresistible. So, I just, I just watched some of these videos a couple weeks ago, and it just, it just, 
Oh, it's, it feels corny, but it is, it is just powerful. So just to take a kind of a smaller example. Maybe this is true of some of you. I don't know. But I, I just, there was a compilation of videos of people who've had lifelong colorblindness. Some of them very severe colorblindness. With just, the colors are extremely muted. And there was one guy who just made me laugh. He's this older gentleman, maybe 60s, 70s years old. And he said, listen, you, you bought me some of those color correcting glasses. I can see that right here. He's like, well, I want you to know you're filming this. I'm not going to cry. I've been a wrestler. I've been a boxer. He's naming all of his like tough things he's done. He said, you're not going to get me to cry. So thanks for buying this. He puts the glasses on. And then within about 10 seconds, he is, he is in tears, and then the son is cracking up laughing. You know, he's filming this right here. And suddenly, he's just staring. He puts these glasses, he's staring at the sky. He looked, they have a bunch of color balloons. He's looking at the balloons. He's like, that's purple, that's blue, yellow, orange, green. They're like, it's the first time he's ever done that. They're like, yes. And he looks at him, he goes, Wait, is that what that, is that, is that tree always, have those leaves always look like that? And just in disbelief, and some people in the family are weeping, other people are just laughing, it's just this incredible moment. Other videos, I'm sure you have seen some of these. Uh, some of these are children who have not been able to hear. Some of them are adults who have been unable to hear. And I don't understand this technology, some of you probably do, but they, they do something. I don't know what it is, but they attach something to their head, it, it connects some way into their head, and they turn it on, and for the first time in their life, they can hear with clarity. And my goodness, if you can watch that without shedding a tear, you are a better person than I because those videos are powerful. Well, why? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or non-Christian. Those videos are viral. They go to millions of views, every single one. Why is it no matter what your belief system, you watch that video and it affects you? It does something to you. What is that? And the answer is we know that we are not the way we were meant to be. And some of us struggle with that in more ways physically than others, but when someone's had a permanent, lifelong physical disability and suddenly in some way it is overcome by technology or whatever it may be, my goodness, the power and the emotion of that moment, this man in his 70s seeing color clearly for the first time in his life, even he cannot resist weeping. Well, imagine this man for more than 40 years, unable to walk, and he, didn't even, he wasn't even able to say, I used to be able to. He had never been able to. And suddenly, he springs to his feet in an instant. His feet and ankles are made strong, and he begins leaping, walking, and praising God, and he enters the temple with Peter and John. Okay, what's the purpose of these signs in the New Testament? Right? There's a lot of these, these miraculous healings signs and wonders. One big reason why these happen in the New Testament, they are a preview of coming attractions. These signs are little previews. You know, you you see a a movie you want to watch, you watch the preview ahead of time, and it's like coming out in a year, COVID, two years. Uh, It's coming out later, and you say, wow, I really want to see that. that. That little preview gives me a taste for the full movie. I can't wait to see that. Well, these are little sneak previews of what life in the kingdom is going to be like for all who know the Lord Jesus. So, Isaiah 35 says, the the deaf will hear, the mute speak, the blind will see, the lame will walk, and they will leap. And then these signs that Jesus and the apostle perform, it's not the fullness of the kingdom coming right now, but it is a preview of what life in the kingdom will be like. In the return of Christ, when the kingdom comes in earth as in heaven, 
It will be true that we will have resurrection bodies and we will never be in any way disabled. Every tear wiped away. I mean, struggles with anxiety and depression and loneliness. Let me say this to you. Maybe you're there today. You will never be depressed for a second again in that time. Never again will you experience depression, loneliness. You know, I mean, loneliness, especially this year, anxiety, panic attacks, stress, never again. Sinful fear or paralyzing fear will be gone forever. But that's not the best part. The best part is the Lord is there. We will see His face with our resurrection eyes, and we will ever and always be with the Lord. Some Christians today become obsessed with signs and wonders here and now, and we could probably all tell you the reasons why that's not a good idea. the point of those signs and wonders is not that we live now with always physical healing and always having physical health and always having exactly what we want materially here in this life, right? We, we know that that's not what God is promising. The signs and wonders are not about a prosperity gospel in the here and now, but they are a promise and a preview of what will be true of us in eternity, and that is where we should set our hopes. Peter says to set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. Let me mention a second reason why these signs appear in the New Testament, and I have a list of verses here. I'm not sure I'm going to take the time to read through a lot of these. I may just sort of paraphrase these. So, what's the purpose of the signs and wonders? Number one, to give you a preview of the kingdom that is to come, but number two, to authenticate the messenger of God, to authenticate the messenger of God. Now, this goes all the way back to our Exodus series. I'm going to you can just sort of act like you remember this. Okay, so if you go back a while when we were in Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 4, the burning bush, remember? Moses says, I've been gone for 40 years from Egypt. If I go back, they're going to not believe me if I say, oh yeah, there was a burning bush talking to me, and he told me to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. I don't think anyone's going to buy that. Sounds like a hidden camera show. That's a not very viable thing. So, give me a sign. And the Lord gives them, remember, the hand into the cloak, the, the staff becomes a snake, pour the water of the Nile out, it becomes blood, and on and on, and then the plagues follow. Those were authentications that Moses was God's man, that God had called him and equipped him and sent him. It, it authenticated Moses. Well, Jesus is authenticated by these miracles. We're told this, I'll just list some verses. Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4 mentions this, that God bore witness to the authenticity of Jesus through the miracles in His ministry. I'll just mention here 2 Corinthians, you don't have to turn to these, but 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, says this, Paul speaking about his own ministry as an apostle, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Let me read that one more time. The signs of a true apostle there are false apostles. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The Lord bore witness that Paul was one of His apostles through His miracles, and the Lord bore witness to Peter and John and the others through their miracles. 
uh, Jesus in John's gospel that we looked at two years ago, I suppose it was, Jesus did those seven sign miracles in John. Just to refresh you, turned water into wine, healed the royal official's son, healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, fed the 5,000 with one child's meal, walked on water, healed the man born blind, and raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, there's debate about one of those, but I think those are pretty safe. Those are the seven sign miracles there. And uh, so, what is Jesus doing with those sign miracles? He's authenticating His ministry, but He's also telling you about who He is. So, here's the very last thing here on that point. When Jesus did His sign miracles, He was telling you about Himself and, and the kingdom. So, turning water into wine saying, when the kingdom comes, there is going to be a feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb that goes beyond any wedding reception you've ever imagined. The healing and the raising of the dead and the healing of the lame says that I'm going to restore physical health to all who know me. Raising Lazarus, the most dramatic example of that. The feeding of the 5,000 points to Himself as the bread of life, and on we could go. So, here's a big question. Should we expect signs and wonders, as we see in Acts, to be a regular recurring thing in the church today? Uh, I, I don't think so, but let me explain why I say that. Okay, something that makes the book of Acts difficult to, to, to teach. So, th- there are things in the Bible that the Bible is describing things that have happened, and sometimes the Bible is prescribing things that you should do. Okay, so describing something that happened, and then prescribing something you should go and do. And in Acts, sometimes it's hard to know, is this a passage that we're supposed to imitate, or is this a passage that we're supposed to learn from but not ourselves imitate? Do you see what I'm saying here? So when it says in chapter 2 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, should we do that? Yes. The fellowship? Yes. Breaking of bread? Yes. Prayer? Yes. But when it says that the, 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 the apostles were regularly doing signs and wonders, should we expect in every local church that normally, regularly, we're seeing radical, dramatic physical healings and signs and wonders like that? Uh, uh, you know, Paul's sweat rag touches people, people are healed, Peter's shadow goes past people, they're healed. Are we, are we supposed to expect that? Well, I think just objectively, look at, do we see that going on? No. Um, and and uh, by the way, just a little footnote again about the faith healing movement which we're not huge fans of around here, to put it nicely. <laughs> With the faith healing movement, what you will notice is very often if they have these big crusades where they, you know, they, they, they're trying to make, if I'm being honest here, they're trying to make a buck or two off of people who are in dire need. Not trying to be judgmental, but that's true. Uh, and so what they do is they, they, they have people who vet people who come up on the stage for these faith healers. And what you'll see is people with real disabilities don't go on the stage. People who are in a wheelchair, who are physically unable to walk, people with cancer who are dying, children with horrible diseases who are on death's doorstep, they are never allowed on the stage. Instead, they always find someone with, get this, lower back pain. That's my favorite fake healing disease. (laughs) So, they they find someone with slight ailments, they bring them on the stage, the person has enough adrenaline being in front of 10,000 people that they're able to kind of walk a little differently than usual, and they pronounce the person healed, and they might make some money. That is not what's going on here in the New Testament, and we're not in support of those kinds of ministries, obviously, as a church. Uh, I think we can look at that very easily and see the problems with that. At least, I, I hope that's the case. Let me just say, if there are faith healers today, it'd be very easy for you to prove that you're a faith healer. I can name two ERs within 10 minutes of here. Just go to the ER and empty it out every day, and I'll, I'll believe you. Okay, go, go for it. Go, just empty every hospital of patients. Just go into the hospital, touch every bed, and everyone walks out healthy. Okay, then I'm going to stop and think about whether you got the gift of healing. But um, for some reason, faith healers don't spend a lot of time doing that. 
which is odd if you're a faith healer. Shouldn't you just clear out the hospitals? Just say it. So, my point is this. That is not something that we should be expecting today. Now, can God still do the miraculous today? I believe absolutely He can. I think it is a more rare thing these days for God to do some kind of miraculous physical healing. I would not write off that that's not possible or that that never happens, but the idea that people will walk around and that we should expect this level of dramatic healings happening on a regular basis, I don't think is, an, is, is a way to understand Acts today. The purpose of the signs and wonders was to authenticate Jesus and the apostles' ministries as they were presenting this new covenant and this new, uh, this, this gospel message to the watching world. Okay, look with me here at verse 11. While He clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, and when Peter saw it, He addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made Him walk? Now, I'm going to stop right here. Let me go two slides forward if I am able here. And I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I'm almost worried this illustration could be distracting. I don't want to be distracting here. But uh, let me just tell you. So, in 2014, I was teaching a Bible class in Madison County, and uh, I had a student named Sam Bartlett. And uh, Sam Bartlett is a great guy, uh, loves the Lord. Some of you know Sam. I think he's visited our church at times here and there. And uh, this is kind of a crazy event. And if you want to know the details, Alan McCannon will fill you in on the details because he was superintendent when this story happened. So, um, my, the, the point here is not to get involved in the details of the story, but I got to tell you the details to get to the point. So, don't get distracted by this part of the story. So, um, somebody uh, donated to the Madison County football team a uh, kind of a, a monument looking thing, a statue kind of thing. I don't know what it was called, like a monument? Is that the right word? Yeah, so a monument. And it had two Bible verses on it. And uh, the football team would sort of touch it on the way out to a game or whatever, you know, is there next to the locker room, I guess it was. And uh, an atheist group got mad about this because, you know, you have a Bible verse on something that's on public school property, and so they, they, they wanted the verses to be removed. I don't want to get into a discussion about that. That's not really my point. But here's the cool thing that happened. So the football coach is asked by Fox and Friends, you know, the national TV show, uh, to have a player from the football team to come represent the team and to, to answer some questions about this moment. Uh, and so the, the coach picked Sam, who was in my class. So Sam, come, I'll never forget this. Sam comes to my little tiny Bible class that day and is like, so, um, he's like 16 or 17. He's like, um, something kind of weird happened. I'm like, what's up, Sam? He's like, well, Fox and Friends called our school and said they wanted someone from the team to answer some questions on their show tomorrow morning, and they picked me. What should I say? <laughs> I was like, well, let's take today's lesson and put that to the side, and we'll talk about this for a little bit. So uh, we spent the whole class period, as you can imagine, talking about, you know, what Sam could say, and it was just the coolest conversation. I was like, this is unreal. Is this like a joke? So Sam, true enough, Got picked up 5 o'clock in the morning by a car, was taken to Atlanta, sat down in their studio, and he, suddenly he's on national television uh, being interviewed about this, and he did a great job. I'm not going to show you the video, but I'll just, I, I could post it later on the email or something, but I, I want to read you <clears throat> what he said. So here's what we, when we discussed this with Sam, uh, our whole class was talking, everybody was in disbelief, and we said, you know, Sam, and, and Sam felt this way, he said, I don't want to get all caught up in the politics of the verse being removed. Like, I don't want that to be the be-all, end-all of what I'm trying to do. I want to, you know, so we kind of all agreed together, let's try to see if you can be just kind in the way you're talking to that atheist group, and then see if you can present the gospel. Because you've got millions of people watching, and they can't, you know, you've got three minutes, go for it, Sam. So Sam's like, all right, I'm going to do that. So I pull it up on the live stream that morning, the next morning, 
I'm watching this thing live. I'm like, Lord, help Sam. This is terrifying. Lord, help Sam. I was scared for him. He's like 16. I think he was still 16 when this, I, I think he was still 16 when this happened, which is unbelievable. So the Fox and Friends host, you can see right there, she says to Sam, what do you say to someone who wants this statue removed to the atheist group that is stepping in here and saying, take this out of here? Sam's response, and these are the exact words. I personally don't have any anger towards him. I disagree. I feel like this is a way for me to represent my faith because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins along with everyone else's. I'm like, I was, I was at my computer going, go Sam, go Sam. <clears throat> the thing is, God, even before this statue was put up, He was still God. And even if it does have to be altered or taken down, He will still be on His throne, and He will still be my God, and I will continue to glorify Him. So I have no anger or resentment towards them. Now, is that not an astonishing answer? And uh, Fox uh, and Friends took 20 seconds of it, the part I just read. They took those 20 seconds of the clip and posted it on Facebook, and I looked it up. I found it. It's still on there. 2.2 million views, more than 6,000 comments, 29,000 likes, 20,000 shares, just from that part I read. And all kinds of responses on the comments. I don't recommend reading all of them. <laughs> so, okay, it's almost a distracting illustration. It's such an interesting and weird thing. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Why do I mention that to illustrate this next part of the sermon? Well, something sort of similar is going on here. Okay, I'm going to stretch this slightly. Peter and John perform this incredible miracle, and all the crowd wants to ask them about the miracle. And they don't really want to spend that much time talking about the miracle. They want to talk about the miracle maker. They want to talk about the maker of the miracle. And so, this crowd, no doubt of thousands, come to, to flock to them at the temple, and Peter and John spend a few sentences on the miracle, and then guess what they do? They preach the gospel. You see? So, here's my point. You, you're probably not going to be on the uh, national television answering these questions. Maybe one of you will someday, but most of us are not going to ever have that opportunity in our life. If you do, I hope you use it well and have a great opportunity. But here's, here's my point. Let's be creative in the way that we find opportunities to bring up Jesus in regular life. Uh, I'm going to embarrass him, but, but just my, my dad uh, has this great uh, habit where if he's talking to an unbeliever or someone who doesn't necessarily know the Lord, they will no doubt ask him, what do you do for a living? Or, you know, what, what have you done for a living? He just retired. He'll say, you know, I'm a pastor. And you know what my dad does? He starts to tell how he became a pastor as his testimony which includes the gospel. Now, isn't that, that's clever. So, so you know, just what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. I never would have thought I would be a pastor. You know, I grew up in a non, you know, not really in a Christian home. My parents weren't active Christians. I went to the Navy. This man shared the, the idea of sin and God's holiness, and I thought he was crazy. And over time, I came to realize I was a sinner and that I, des I deserved God's judgment. That was really hard to believe at first. And then before long, I, I got down and accepted Jesus into my life. And then I started reading the New Testament with this, with this hunger, and God just started changing my life. And then before I knew it, I'm in the ministry and I'm, I'm going to seminary, and suddenly I'm in the pastorate. Now, that's one of, you can come up with your own thing. I want you to be creative, but we need to find ways to where when someone's asking us about something, we find ways to lovingly and wisely incorporate Jesus into what we're saying. And I'll admit, I'm not good at this. You know, I don't mean in some cheesy mechanical way, but I mean trying to find a way to bring Jesus into conversations with others when they're not necessarily asking us about our faith, but we find a loving, winsome way to sort of incorporate that in to what's being said. Do you understand 
kind of what I'm getting at. So Sam here did not have to present the gospel, but what did he do? He went straight to gospel and presented the gospel on national TV, and millions of people heard a brief synopsis of the gospel and heard a very kind and wise young man speaking uh, for a few minutes. And I think a lot of people admired Sam in that moment, and perhaps some people cracked their Bible open after seeing that interview. Wouldn't surprise me if that's what happened. So let's think creatively about how to move towards the gospel. Okay. If I don't totally get through the passage, I'll save some of it for next Sunday. So uh, let's look back here at verse 11. And, and this here is, is approximately where they were, somewhere in these kind of porticos. Uh, there's massive structures near the temple. People would have been, there would have been thousands of people, and many would have run together seeing this man's healing to come hear how it happened. And they have no idea. They're about to get a face full of gospel as they come to ask about the miracle. So, verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel. Now, the first thing he wants to do is clarify, we didn't do this miracle. The Lord Jesus did this miracle. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety, we have made Him walk." Now, just pause there for one moment. In other words, they're, they're kind of saying two things. Number one, there's no magic going on here. This is not like we said a name, Jesus, and magically things just started happening. No, no, no. It's faith in the name of the Lord Jesus and His activity through faith that is doing this. It's, it's Him, not us. It's not our righteousness, not our goodness. It's what Jesus has done. Next is verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. Now, just pause. Do you see how the conversation just took a dramatic turn? We're so used to Him preaching the gospel. Just, just you see the turn? The turn is this. Thousands of people run to them, What's up with it? We, we've seen this guy for years. How did you heal him? And before they know it, he is talking about their sin in having Jesus crucified, confronting them with their sin, and leaving hope of the gospel right in front. Like, that, that is a turn the crowd was not anticipating. Suddenly, there's gospel, there's sin, there's hope. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. I'm going to read the beginning of 16 again. It's awkward, it's awkward, isn't it, grammatically? And His name, by faith in His name, has made this man strong. So, what we see happen to this man physically is almost like an outward parable of what can be true of any of us spiritually. We are broken. We are sinful. We are evil. We have denied the Lord Jesus. We need His salvation, His grace. And what does He say? The name of Jesus can save you. Now, can, can I just make a little side note here? We, you know, yesterday, yes, it was Halloween, but more importantly, it was Reformation Day, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, get your 95 
Reese's, right? Okay, so uh, Reformation Day was yesterday. And one of the big things that the Reformation brought out was that we are saved by faith alone, which is absolutely true, not by works. But I want to I clarify here, and I'm sure if Luther were here, he would, he would agree with this. We are technically not saved by faith. No, I'm not blaspheming. Hang on. Technically, we're saved by the name. We're saved by Jesus, right? We're saved by what He has done. And the way we get in on His grace, the way that we experience His grace, the way that we experience forgiveness is by faith, which is through Jesus. So, by our faith in Jesus alone, we are united to Christ, who is our righteousness, who is our sin-bearing atonement, who is all that we need to be reconciled to God. And when we put our faith in Jesus, it's not technically faith that saves you. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, if a helicopter comes to get you and you're about to drown… And, you know, you, you, you throw a rope up, and the person in the helicopter grabs the rope, and you're… Well, yeah, the, the rope, in a sense, does save you, but really, it's the helicopter pulling you out of there that saves you. I mean, yes, our faith connects you to Jesus. You need faith. That's what, that's what makes you right with God. But technically, it is Jesus Himself who saves us through the faith that He grants to His people. So, we here see that it is through His name, through faith in His name, that this man is standing before us perfectly whole. And spiritually speaking, we can be perfectly whole standing in the presence of God because of the work that Jesus has done for us through the cross and through the empty tomb. I want to close. I want you to see here, Jesus is not up in heaven busy with other things. We're told in chapter 2 that Jesus poured out the Spirit at Pentecost, and here Jesus continued His healing ministry. It wasn't Peter, it wasn't John, it was the name, as in the authority of Jesus. That's what, when we say, I'm doing this in the name of so-and-so, you mean I'm doing it under this person's authority. I'm doing it by their, you know, I'm doing it under their command, under their authority. Well, this healing is a healing of Jesus done through the apostles. And Jesus, at this very moment, is willing to forgive, receive, cover, clothe in His righteousness any and all who will turn from sin and trust in His finished work. So, let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, thank You for those of us who know You. Thank You for the way that You intervened in our lives, that You granted us the faith to believe, that You transformed our heart. The most important healing we could ever experience is not our body, it is our soul and our heart coming alive to You after being dead in sin and transgression, and that miracle You still perform every day in this world regenerating hearts, causing that new birth to take place in our soul. God, for any within the hearing of my voice who does not know You in a saving way, I pray that they would see here the offer of full forgiveness and acceptance despite our sin and guilt by faith in the name of Jesus. And for all who trust You, help us to see that in the future when Your kingdom comes and Your will is done on the new earth as in heaven, when there's a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, God, help us to know that we will have full restoration physically and spiritually, and we will be in Your presence for all of eternity, and nothing will ever be able to take that joy and that hope away from us.
So help us to celebrate these truths, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.